Would you open your Bibles to the book of Mark? I am Darren. I'm one of the pastors here. We are um, we're about to embark on a... You know, it turns out you, uh, you can't rush a sermon on Sabbath. I mean, you can, but there would be a little bit of hypocrisy in that. You know what I'm saying? So as I was preparing, I was thinking, man, I got a lot to cram in here. So spoiler alert, this is going to be two parts because we're going to take our time in that. I actually, uh, if I'm being really honest, was thinking maybe I won't teach on this because I'm so bad at this. Or hire somebody out, you know, get a professional in here. You know, Pastor Heslop, have you come teach us? I don't know. But I, I genuinely thought maybe I shouldn't teach on this because I'm not, this is not a, a, a strong suit of mine. The world I grew up in, and if this is you, I'll know because you'll respond immediately. We were in the world of, well, the devil don't take a day off, so neither should you. Right? The devil don't rest, so we don't rest. And I never thought about it then, but this week I'm thinking, wait a minute, when did I start taking advice from the devil? <laughs> like, he loses. And I was actually, I don't know, I was sort of meditating on that and thinking, um, one of you guys, I mean, Vinny, you might know this. There's a scripture where Jesus talks about when the demons come out and they go, in, they go into a dry and arid places where there is no rest. In Job 1, when God says to the accuser, hey, where have you been? And he says, I've been running to and fro all over the world getting stuff done. I thought that's pretty much the answer to everybody from Williamson County when you say, how have you been? Busy. So just so you know, we're going to step on everybody's toes today, and we're going to do it equal opportunity, including my own, and I'm, what I'm sharing with you today is a little bit of my own, because it wasn't like we were anti-Sabbath. We weren't pro-Sabbath or anti. It was like we're Sabbath neutral, right? We just, it was there, but Jesus here is actually talking about Sabbath, and there's two little vignettes that are together that I want to read to you from. So we're going to read from chapter 2, verses 23 through 28, and then we're going to read chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. It's two separate vignettes that, if you read the Matthew account in chapter 12, they actually happen right after each other, but they're both dealing with the same issue, which is Sabbath. And he says, uh, verse 23, on Sabbath, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples walked along, and they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath, the equivalent of someone drove by a Chick-fil-A and reached in and grabbed a sandwich out on Sunday? You know what I'm saying? The grain fields are closed, Chick-fil-A is closed, but I got a sandwich anyway. It's unlawful. It's not heard of. It's our pleasure to serve you, just not on Sunday. He answered, and he's actually telling the story from 1 Samuel 21 here. Have you never seen what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God. He ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. And then he said to him, this is interesting because Jesus doesn't say, hey, you're sat, don't, don't worry about Sabbath. Don't, it's not a problem at all. He says to them instead, look, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. 
And in Matthew 12, he actually speaks about the temple and there's, uh, there's someone among you, the temple. I'm, he's pointing to, I am your Sabbath. And then in chapter three, verse one, another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there and some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. It's basically come down to the front, right? We're gonna like an altar call for prayer. And then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill, but they remained silent. And he looked around and in anger, and whenever you see Jesus angry in the scripture, best to pay attention to what that, what's happening there, what made him angry. And I think it's a, he's saying, like, your hearts are shriv- more shriveled than this guy's hand is. Your hearts are so cold that you, this is where you find yourself. He was deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. And then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, which is a light. It's a promise. It would illuminate all of our hearts in a dark world, including one that we maybe are navigating just because it's normal in a busy world that we're in. Lord, would you speak to us as to what Sabbath might mean for us in our hearts? It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. I do want to say this. I'm going to put this up and hold it for a little bit so you can take pictures of it. These are three of the books that I've been in the last couple weeks that have really been speaking to me about this specific subject. So uh, if you want to go way deeper, uh, one of them, the one on the right, The Sabbath World, that's Judith Shulevitz. She is a, a Jew. She's not a Christian, but she makes a fascinating case for Sabbath. Uh, Subversive Sabbath is this young guy up in Portland, A.J. Swoboda, great, and of course the uh, Tim Keller who just does not have an unpublished thought, and it, they're all good. So um, I was, uh, <laughs> there's something about this that's really interesting to me because it says that the Herodians, okay, and the Pharisees. Now the Herodians were the, the Romans from uh, Rome when they would conquer a nation, most of you know this, they would uh, allow the, the local culture on some levels to, to remain, but they would send in their uh, governed uh, provincial powers. And, and so you would have them bringing their sense of progressive values, their, their views on sexuality, their views on finances and prosperity. They brought their, their foreign values on the culture that they were invading, but they would allow the, the locals to be there. So the Herodians would have been very progressive, very liberal, very much bringing the fall. You know, we, we read anything about the fall of Rome and all that stuff that you saw going on. They're bringing that into Jerusalem. But then you've got the Pharisees who are there, who have been there this whole time, and they're trying to protect their family values, the things that they believe, their conservative values. They are the red states and the blue states. And for some reason, the red states and the blue states could agree on something suddenly. What would that have been? And I think... Some of it, and I'm, it's arguable, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I don't think I am. That there's something that made them angry. If you're a progressive and you're like, what, who cares about Sabbath? Let's throw it all away. Let's open Chick-fil-A every Sunday. Like, we're progressives. We're going to pick at them. We're going to throw them out. So 
on the one side, you've got the, the progressives that are saying, we, we want every day, don't mess with our rights to do whatever. On the other side, we're fighting for our family values. We're gonna be here. So we want the religious side of us to be here. And Jesus gave something that didn't make either of them happy. Isn't that fascinating? So the question is, in a world of where we live, modern, sophisticated Westerners such as ourselves, that's what we think of ourselves, Maurice. Honestly, we don't say it out loud much, but we think we're, we, we figured this out, right? We're, we're Westerners. We're smart. My Haitian friends are laughing. <laughs> oh, we all need a dose of humility, and Jesus is about to give it to all of us. Because when you start talking about Sabbath, this kicks at both the right and the left side of the aisle. It kicks at every idol that a Western culture could erect. Why do we need a Sabbath? Do we? Is there such a thing as Jesus' Sabbath? What is that? And then how do we do it? Those are the three things we're going to start talking about today, and then we'll see how far we get, right? Why do we need a Sabbath to begin with? What is it? Because the thing that Jesus says here is that I'm Lord of the Sabbath. He doesn't immediately say, okay, stop all of this. He actually will point to myself. And by the way, in Colossians 1.22, he does say that, hey, don't you know, make a, a case for the Sabbath and the religion and the policies and the procedures. Don't let anybody judge you according to these holy days. We'll talk about that in a minute. But Jesus doesn't say, I'm doing away with Sabbath altogether. Instead, what he's saying is, I'm just Lord of it, pointing towards it. And there's something about that that I'm intrigued by because of the Ten Commandments, are there any of the 10 that we would say are not for today? Right? I'm going to ask it a different way. And this is part, I was actually, I kind of wrote a little bit this this morning in first service while I was praying that of the 10 commandments, there are nine of them that if I were to violate in some method or another as your pastor, I would be and should be fired for that. Depend, you know, the infractions, if I'm having an, an affair, if I'm stealing, if I'm, you know what I'm saying? I should be Fired for those, but there's one commandment that if I violate, not only am I not fired, I could actually be celebrated and promoted Sabbath because I'm dominating, I'm kicking butt, taking names, I'm available, I'm here for you. I'm... And here's what I was praying about. I don't know, Max, this might hit you in a way, it hit me, Max, and I had a great little lunch this week but, or coffee, but I was thinking about it even in terms of a pastor, why is it so hard for me to do a Sabbath or a sabbatical? Because on the one hand, if I just turn my phone off for a day, my initial response to that would be, well, they, what if something goes wrong? What if they need me? What if, like, what if they can't get a hold of me? What if, of course, you know, for most of our adult lives, most of you that have been around a while, that was a, that's actually what's called life before. <laughs> and just so you know, when you turn this thing off, just the last thing you see is an apple with a bite out of it. So just think about that. I don't know, as I was thinking and praying it through, I think that I, I'm not afraid. Listen, I'm not afraid of that. What I'm afraid of is that I turn my phone off and I turn it back on and life went on without me. That you didn't need me. That I, I'm not your savior, but I think I am. The point being that there's something in this idea of Sabbath that all of it hits, it strikes at the heart of all of us. And I'm throwing myself up here laying it all out there for you, but I want you to know that this is, we all have this piece of us. The Herodians <laughs> and the Pharisees all need to point to a Jesus, right? 
that is the savior of it. Now that said, in our culture, you know, most weeks I have some sort of an article, something that I've been reading this week, something I've been diving into. And in many weeks, it's like, I don't really have enough and I don't know what, what I'm going to say. There are some weeks where it's like, there is so much that I don't even know where to start. That, this is one of those weeks. But I do want to start with this and say that work is not a sin. Working hard isn't part of the curse. Adam and Eve actually worked in the garden. That was part of God's design. My friend Scott Sauls wrote a book called Irresistible Faith, and he said this in there, that work, that all productive activity apart from rest and play contributes to our fulfilled uh, fulfillment as God's image bearers. So what you do in your work, you are doing God's work. It is one of the primary ways we've been invited by God to participate in his mission to redeem, restore, and develop the world. Work isn't a sin. Six days of it. We're supposed to work for six days. The two-day work, work week or uh, weekend is actually, that was an American thing. That wasn't even a God thing. But the seventh day, and I would venture to say in a place like this, there's some of us that probably need a little bit of advice on the six days. You know, snap it up a little bit. But we live in Middle Tennessee. I'm venturing to guess that most of us need to focus more on the seventh day and what we're supposed to do there and what that looks like. In this week's, it's been a couple weeks ago, there was an article that appeared in uh, The Atlantic, and this guy is not a Christian, uh, secular progressive, and he's speaking about the work culture that is existing in our society right now, and he calls it, he's, again, this is a secular progressive, and he calls it workism, the new religion of Americans. And he writes this, he says that work, let me skip down here, I've skipped ahead in my own sermon. I'm not scrolling fast enough, am I? He says this, he's talking about uh, economists in the early 20th century did not foresee work, I'm going to get to what workism is in a minute, did not foresee that work might evolve from a means of material production to a means of identity production. What he's saying in the early 20th century, work was about getting something done so you could produce and you could get it. And now in our current society, it's actually about your identity in it. And back then, there was all these people that were writing books and psychologists that were saying that the coming day is we have to figure out what we're going to do with all of the leisure activity that's coming. They literally, the psychologists in the early 20s and 30s were writing books about the five-day weekend. Forget Tim Ferriss's four-hour four work week. It was, well, we got a whole, all this leisure time, and none of that has happened. And here's what he says. This is what the writer, uh, Travis, says. A decline of traditional faith in America has coincided with an explosion of new atheisms. Some people worship beauty. Some people worship political identities. Others worship their children. But everybody worships something. Okay? Now, you think a pastor's right in that, but that's a secular humanist who's acknowledging what we all know. And workism is among the most potent of the new religions competing for congregants. Now, he's making this case that this is for upper uh, echelon and for wealthy people, that if you're being paid enough that you have to work this much to justify your pay. That's the argument he's making here. But the fact is, is that that's on, on every segment of society, this is what's happening. If you're, if you're doing well and you're financially secure, then you have to work even harder to justify your money. If you are, especially in the millennial culture right now, you're working so hard just to try to stay afloat, but because your identity was so wrapped up in your work, in this paper on um, 
the millennial burnout is saying that the side hustle gig, the idea that I'm working, because there was a day, by the way, when you would go to work in the morning and you came home at night, you were done. When I first became an agent, my boss was a guy named Charles Doris, and Charles is a saint of a human being. And in the early, you know, the mid to late 90s, I'm working at uh, his little company called the William Morris Agency, and he says, that, like, the first day I, my, I get in my new office and the phone rings, and it's like, you know, my assistant does, uh, Darren Tyler's office, Darren Tyler's office, and it started, and it just never stopped from there on out. Darren Tyler's office, can you hold Darren Tyler's office? I'm like, Whoa. So I asked Charles one day, how do you do this? Because Charles has been doing this for a good 20 years, and he used this metaphor. He said, well, Darren, uh, being an agent's a lot like uh, being in a whitewater raft. You just, in the morning, you take your kayak off of your vehicle, you put it in the water, you hold on for dear life, and then at the end of the day, you put your kayak on top of your car, you drive home, and then tomorrow you do it again. And that was actually how it worked in the 90s for us. If somebody wanted to send you a message, they had to fax it. And it would just come out of a machine and a piece of paper and fall onto the floor and it'd be there for you in the morning when you got there. And Those days are so long gone because your phone can ring all hours of day and night. We were having a, a dinner this week with a friend of ours who's an attorney and he's got a client that's a little busier than most of his clients. He said that he answers the phone every morning at six o'clock, it's this client. And every night when he goes to bed about 10 or 11 o'clock, this client will actually sneak out of his bedroom where his wife is and go down to his office. He works from home and is answering. He's calling him like in a, because he's trying to sneak away from his wife. He's working all the time, 24 seven. That's the culture that we're in. Now, I could just continue on and tell you that the, the psychologists, all the doctors, everybody's saying they're throwing up a red flag. There's three or four more articles just from the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal in the past month talking about this very thing, about how as a culture our anxiety is higher than it's ever been. Our kids right now, and some of you know this who are trying to make college decisions, are feeling more anxiety than ever. We had the crisis unfold this week where these parents were paying money to get their kids into a university just so they could have that university's name on their diploma because of a brand with it. And we all went, oh, I can't believe that somebody would do such a thing as that. And yet we live in a culture that says, if I don't have my kid in soccer by the time he's four, he's screwed. Listen to a, one of the books I shared with you is uh, Bring Back it's Sabbath, the Sabbath World by Judith Shulovitz. She is a Jewish writer for the New York Times. And I shared this article with you guys a couple of years ago, but it's, I, there was something in here that I wanted to read to you again because just, it just, I, it's never left me. It's from her book. This is from 2003, by the way, which tells me that this isn't some new thing that we just created as millennials. Right? This, is, this has been around since the beginning of time, since the Pharisees and, and the Herodians got together on this. But Judith was talking about her life as an adult, a, 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 a liberal female executive professional writer in New York. And she was realizing as time went on how this darkness was forming inside of her, how she was exp experiencing this morose and this pressure and this anxiety. And she began to look back at her youth and went back to a synagogue, to the synagogue of her youth. But here's what she says, that she was talking about a writer of Freud, a guy, a student of Freud, writing about Sabbath and yada, yada. But here's what she says. On the weekly holiday observed by all present-day civilized humanity, in quotes, he was writing in 1919 when Sunday was still sacred. Do you guys, did anybody grow up in a town where everything was closed on Sundays? 
You, you want to go to the store at, in the evening? You better get there before five because it's shut down. And turns out you can still get milk in the morning and nobody died. But listen, here's what she's saying. This is the reason. Uh, uh, Judith is going to sum this up. I could read you 10 more articles, but she sums it up in this sentence. The working in our society, the way that we're working, is not about the money. She says that it is about the machinery of self-censorship that shut down. This is what Sabbath did for them, and this is what our modern workday is, is doing to us. The machinery of self-censorship shut down to the stilling, the eternal, listen to this phrase, eternal inner murmur of self-reproach. That was what Sabbath was meant to do. Because whether you're a millennial doing the side hustle or whether you're a successful executive doing the real hustle, at the core of all of us, we have the eternal internal murmur of self-reproach that says, I'm not enough, and only if I succeed, only if I don't turn my phone off on Mondays and get a call from you, only then will I be valuable enough to justify my existence. Tim Keller talks about the movie Chariots of Fire. I remember watching it as a kid and being completely bored out of my mind because I didn't understand it. But there's a scene in this movie where one of the athletes is talking about running and why he has to run and why he can't. He says it because in the next 10 seconds, I justify my entire existence for living. If I can't do this, what, am, what good am I? And what Sabbath was meant to do for the Jewish people, and what I think maybe Jesus was saying was not shutting down the grain and all the talk about bread, was saying that we shouldn't shut down even a misguided attempt at trying to connect again with the reason that we were created. Even if it's misguided, it's better than nothing. Sabbath was literally baked into who we are. A lot of people don't know this, but the French revolution after it was over in the 1600s, I believe, they decided they were going to be a secular progressive society. And so they did, do you guys know this history, people? They did away with the seven-day work week. It was going to be 10 days now. They're going to show the world that we don't need because it was they were trying to do away with religion, shutting down the seven-day work week, not knowing that it isn't just the creation story. It is literally the creation of us. It is our story wired into us. Suicides went up in France. Production went down in France. It's, and for those of you that have been around, I'm going to say something that we probably shouldn't put on a public recording. I've traveled to French colonies and I've traveled to other colonies. The ones that have been French colonies, they did a number on those people. You can go from Ghana into Togo, and you see a specific difference of what happened, and I think it's a result directly. You can speak to that. I don't know. Lawrence, from Kenya and Maurice, but there's it, it, just something about when they took God out of that, it really, really wrecked some countries. And they had to shut that down, and that French revolutionary calendar had to admit finally that that actually doesn't work, that we can't explain why from secular definitions of why that a six-day work week and rest on the seventh works, but the Bible sure did. The Sabbath for us is a gift. Jesus said that I didn't create man to serve the Sabbath. I created it for you. And why do we need it then? Like what is it at the core of that? There's something about that in Genesis. We don't have time to go there right now. But when the end of day, every day, God said it's good. At the end of the day, it's good. It's good. I wonder if there's something in that of us of what the real story of Sabbath is for us, which is for us to end every ordinary day and say, it's good.
it's good that I can stop the eternal internal murmur of self-reproach. And I think the only way that we get to, and I don't think, I know the only way that we can do that is because the work that Jesus did. What was his words on the cross? It's finished. It's good. He looks on you, Chris, and he says, you're good. Because the work Christ did, you're good. And is it not a beautiful picture even in the story of creation? On the sixth day, Genesis 1, I think verse 27 says, Adam and Eve, he created on the sixth day, men and women, he, man and woman, he created them and he put them in the garden, subdue the garden and go to work. And you know what the next day was after the sixth day? The seventh day. And what did they do? You got all this work to do. They rested first. Sixth day, you're, we're gonna work tomorrow. Oh, but we're gonna take a break. Because in Christ, we start from a position of rest, not from work. And some of us in this room, we have the gospel backwards because we go to work thinking we're gonna earn the rest. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 I'm the rest. Hebrews 4, make every effort to enter into the rest that he has for you. The, sa- the only commandment was <laughs> that said remember. Remember the Sabbath. He didn't say remember not to commit adultery because we pretty much remember that. Doesn't mean we don't always go by it, but we remember it. It wasn't that we forgot. Remember the Sabbath. We're going to talk uh, next week about what that might look like because what I don't want you to do today is to walk out of here, especially you type A folks. You got, you got your list working. I will say this, a little clue of what I think Sabbath is supposed to be when you look at what, especially the Jewish people, the way that they celebrated Sabbath. They ate bread. They drank wine. Husbands and wives. We have children in here? Made children. (laughs) There's the Sabbath. My point is, Listen, <laughs> well, I mean, especially if you're on a once a week bath schedule, do you know what I'm saying? Because it wasn't like they had, they didn't have showers. It makes more sense than you think. Um, <laughs> it's not even third service and I'm literally off the rails. Um, Sabbath was not about stopping everything. It was starting something else. If it had to do with worship and rest, that was Sabbath. If it had to do with turning off the thing that brings you value, because I'm going to say this, I don't think binging your Netflix series is actually Sabbath because that doesn't actually belong in worship or rest. When was the last time you binged 12 shows and thought, man, I feel really good about myself? feel like I can go take on the world right now. <laughs> and I will say this. This will be the last thing I say. Thank God. Uh, <laughs> you have to be careful not to put the rules and the policies and the procedures and the regulations. And the, in the book of Genesis, when the serpent came to Eve, said, talk, remember this, eat from the tree. And, and Eve said, he told us, we can't eat from that tree. We can't even touch it. 
But that's not what God said. God said, don't eat from it. She added, don't touch it, and legalism was born. Be careful when you make a rule out of something where Jesus made an invitation. The invitation is, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I love Eugene Peterson's interpretation of that, that to find the unforced rhythms of grace. There are commandments in the Bible, but I think the Sabbath is an invitation of maturity, of human flourishing. You think there's a reason why when Chick-fil-A builds a store in town, they, only do, they can do in six days what every other store needs seven days to do? Or is maybe God saying, they're on to something. They're on to something. Come unto me. If you've come unto Jesus and you don't feel that rest, you don't understand what you've gotten. You don't understand that you can turn the phone off for that day. Nobody dies. Government secrets aren't revealed. Jesus, he'll still be there. He's still Lord tomorrow. For those of you that are justice warriors, you understand that you have to have that rest as well. I can't tell you how many missionaries I've seen burn themselves out trying to be someone's savior. Not even, they don't, they aren't, think that's what they're doing, but you need it as much as anybody else because Jesus said, he's, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, the sixth day. Do you think God was tired or do you think he was trying to show us a rhythm? He never sleeps. But he was able to stop and say, my everyday, ordinary life, it's good. Not my life someday, my, if I get this college, not if I get that, it's good. Stand and let's pray. When Jesus was on the cross, I think it's the prophet Isaiah in chapter 41, he spoke about the wicked writhe like the sea that's moving and they can't sit still. Like, do you think that Jesus on the cross was writhing like the sea because he was made wicked so that we aren't wicked anymore? He was made sin so that we right, are no longer. We are now the righteousness of God in Christ. He looks at you, Martin, especially you, he looks at you and says, it's good. That's amazing to me. And when I remind myself, if I have one, whether it's one week or every day, I, we'll talk about that next week. But to have some sort of a rhythm in our life that reminds me of that, even if it's misguided, it's better than Nothing. Jesus, thank you for the rest. Lord, I pray that as my family is learning some lessons here, that all of us will learn them together. <laughs> the Sabbath isn't some giant burdensome thing. It's a gift for us. And how dare we reject it? At our own peril would we reject a gift like that. God, I, I know that even right now there's somebody in here thinking there's no way I could do this. I'm feeling the burden. Lord, would you allow them to just pop the bubble and just breathe and accept the invitation. Soccer can wait. Dance can wait. Work, my relationship, my... Lord, it's you that want to give us rest, and that's the gift we want to receive from you today. 
It's your, it's a gift we don't have to wait for heaven for. Satan might be working seven days a week, but not me. I'm taking a day off. <laughs> In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Guys, I hope that's a blessing. I know that it's vacation week for some of y'all. Take some Sabbath time in there. <laughs>